Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. your Bibles this morning. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to put it up on the screen. We're in the process right now of reading through um, Genesis. And in doing that, um, we're learning a lot about our descendants in the faith. Abraham specifically, but he's got a lot of relatives and we're learning about other people in this culture. The setting for what we're learning right now is taking place in, if you looked at a map in the Middle East, it, it would be modern day Israel. All right. So that's kind of where all of this is taking place. So um, in Galatians 3.29, like we talked about last week, um, Christ, if we are in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham, okay? That's the kind of the, the, the idea of why we're studying this, because what God told Abraham is connected to us through Christ. So the promises that God gave to Abraham and the children of Israel essentially flow into us through Christ. That's one of the reasons why we're reading this. The other reason why we're reading this is to understand our rich history and God's faithfulness. So what we're doing is we're, we're essentially um, asking God to show us how we're grounded in the history and how we're supposed to forsake things in order to follow God. You guys with me? Cool. Um, the reason why it's important to understand how we're grounded in God is because we as Americans have this habit of thinking that we exist independent of things that came before us. What is most important is us, our perspective, and where we are in history. And we often forget that we are connected to many, many things before we ever showed up. The fact that we're following Christ and connected to the family of God means we are connected to something um, that has a rich history uh, and things that took place thousands of years ago affect and are connected to what we are doing here today. So that's, that's one of the reasons why we're reading it. So as we get into this, we're picking up in the middle of the story, Galatia, or Genesis chapter 18. Um, Abraham has been told by God that there are multiple promises, right? that he's going to fulfill in giving him descendants and families and his wife, who's 90 years old, is going to have a child. And when he heard this, he kind of laughed. We're picking up that story in Genesis 18. So Genesis 18, I'm going to read a couple verses here. Genesis 18, let's start with verse 1. It says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went and quickly went into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sias of fine flour, knead it and make some cakes. Now when you read cakes, that's not the same thing as what you're thinking. She's not making birthday cakes. She's making um, like little... uh, smaller like pancakes you can think like that so after he asked his wife to go make pancakes 
Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So let's pause right there because what Abraham is doing here is important. He's treating his visitors in an extremely hospitable way. He went overboard to be hospitable to these people that came in. Now, the reason why that's important is because hospitality in this culture was unbelievably important. It's one of the things that was valued and treasured above um, most other things. The idea that when a visitor comes to your home, you have a responsibility to treat them with honor and respect. And the reason why this was such a huge part of their culture, hospitality, was because um, their culture was high in honor, right? Because they saw each other as image bearers of God but also because they didn't know if the visitor who was coming might have been God or an angel. And so their, their decision to treat most people with hospitality was rooted in this idea that you don't know who's at your door. This could be somebody who um, um, has a lot of wealth and a lot of power, or this could be God himself showing up. This could be an angel delivering a message from God. And so you have a responsibility to treat the people at your door with some hospitality because you honor the fact that God does, in fact, send messengers to your home to deliver messages. So what we're seeing is Abraham's reflection within this culture of hospitality. Now, this tradition has um, always been a part of the Middle Eastern culture. And if you've ever gone to Israel or, or, or the Middle East, or, or even uh, maybe if you um, have some um, neighbors that um, are from the Middle East, one of the things that you'll notice is the hospitality that they have. Um, the desire for, hey, would you come over and share a meal with my family? Please, come into my home. Let me serve you. Let me, let me share a meal with you. Hospitality is still a big part of that culture. It was a part of the early church culture, but unfortunately, it is not necessarily a part of our culture as Christianity today. And the reason why is because as modern Christians, well, not modern Christians, but modern American Western people, we have started replacing the value of hospitality with the desire for rudeness. If we're just talking about what we as a people value more, we value being right and our points being made more than we value hospitality. And we see this everywhere. We see this in the way that modern homes are being built. If you look at the way that modern homes are, were, were built 50 years ago versus the way that homes are built today, guess what most modern homes don't have anymore? A front porch. There was a time in our culture as Americans where people, what, they, what do you do with your spare time? You sit on the front porch and you shout at your neighbors and you say, hey, and you know their names and their kids' names and where they go to school and you walk across the street and you talk with them. But today, most of us are too busy to do that because we're sitting inside on our phones. We've seen this not just in the way that homes are made, but we see this in the way that we arrange our time. There is very, very few meals being shared around the dinner table because most meals are being shared in the car going between fields, getting your kids to the games they need to get to. When was the last time that your family sat around the table and had a meal together and someone who was not part of your family was at that table with you? having conversations, sharing ideas, sharing love, 
with people who are outside of your circle of friends, direct and in, in, uh, specific family members. This was a huge part of the culture of the early church. This is, how the, this is how the gospel spread. It was in people's homes. It wasn't in a formal setting like this on Sunday morning. The gospel, whoop, the gospel spread, this is why I don't have a, let's try that, maybe I won't trip. This, the, this is the reason why the gospel spread, is because people are inside each other's homes, they're sharing their lives together, and when you sit across the table and look someone in the eye and have an honest conversation and they can see the feeling in your face when you're talking about the things that you're passionate about, it has a different effect than just tweeting 140 characters online about what you think about a thing. You, do you see the difference? That's why the gospel spread so quickly because it was in homes and it was being shared heart to heart with people. But we've moved away from that, that concept of hospitality, and we've moved into what is a, a, a little more just kind of direct and rude. Now, I'm, what I'm not saying is that all of you people are rude. I'm saying we as a people are collectively rude because we've allowed ourselves to drift away from some of the roots that really were fundamental to the gospel message being spread. Talking to people face to face about the beauty of our king. So what Abraham is doing is modeling um, this idea of honor and faith within the culture that we've kind of lost. And so my desire as we read through this, and I told you one of the things you should be doing as you're reading is wanting to change. As I'm reading this, what I'm wanting to do is saying, all right, my life is out of whack with what I see the people of faith doing in the book that I say that I believe. So if I'm reading this and I'm saying, okay, um, Abraham is the father of our faith and this is the way that he chose to live, I'm a part of that faith and I'm not living this way. So either one of two things, either one, he was wrong and Abraham should live more like me or two, I'm wrong and I need to shift the way that I'm doing things. Maybe I need to open my calendar up a little more so I'm more available to some of those conversations that I just can't have right now. Maybe I need to be okay buying a little bit extra at the grocery store so that I can do the hard thing of going next door to that neighbor who's lived next to me for three years, but I never, I just, it just slipped my mind. I never got to know their name and I can go to their house and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm your neighbor. I know you lived here for a long time, but I've never gotten a chance to come over and say hello. I'd love to have your family come to my house and eat dinner. What night is good? Oh, wow. No, for a lot of you, like that just added so much like social anxiety. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't, that doesn't make me feel good. I don't do those kinds of things. Well, you can either not do those kinds of things or you can follow the pattern that's been set in the word of God for the way that Christians are supposed to live. And that's the struggle for us, right? Most of our lives are lived in this way where what you want and who you think you are rubs up against what God wants you to be and you have to make a decision. Am I gonna be me or am I gonna be transformed into what God wants me to be? That's the, that's the thing that we always keep coming back to. You either get your way or you let God have his way. That's what it always is. It always boils down to that. So one of the things that I think is super important about emphasizing this concept of hospitality, and I think we know this, but the reason why we're emphasizing this so much, and I'm spending you know, a section of time on these specific verses, is because if the gospel message is worthy to be spread, and Jesus gave us the great commission and told us, go out and preach to all the world, it is much easier for people to receive truth from a mouth that is hospitable, that's why this is important. 
Because if you're going to fulfill the Great Commission in the world we live in today, one of the things that we need to start practicing more is being hospitable. When we do that, we earn the right to speak truth into people who want nothing to do with us. Because the world has been told what Christians look like and sound like. We're angry. We shake our fists at everything. We're not rational, reasonable people. We're just mad at stuff that doesn't go our way. And so when you take the time to invite somebody into your home and you prepare a meal for them and you show them what the love of Christ looks like, you're blowing out of the water their pre There it is. <laughs> Almost got me that time. You're blowing away their preconceived ideas of what they thought a Christian should be. So if you want to be good at evangelizing, start sharing meals with people. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Now let's go to verse 9. So these three guys, they come and they meet Abraham and they're, they're having this meal together. And so they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And she, he said, well, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, oh, oh, the Lord said, that's interesting. So one of these three visitors is the Lord. And we talked about last week how Jesus shows up in the Old Testament in different ways. This is one of those opportunities. This is one of these moments. This is Jesus before he was born and his mom gave him the name Jesus. He was referred to as the angel of the Lord or the Lord. He shows up with two of these visitors. So the three visitors, one of them is Jesus. And the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. They weren't just old. They were advanced in years. And the, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Poor thing. You know the way of women? It ceased to be with Sarah. So what did Sarah do when she heard that? Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, <laughs> after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, hey, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, uh, I didn't laugh. And Jesus responded, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> so it turns out these angels, of these three visitors, two of them were angels. One of them was Jesus. They came to just deliver this message that 90-year-old Sarah, who no longer had the way of women, was going to have a child. And she laughed. Now, this is interesting because in the last chapter in Genesis 17, 17, we see that Abraham laughed as soon as he heard the news too. But he didn't get a, rebu a rebuke from the Lord. So Abraham laughed and then God didn't rebuke him, but Sarah laughed and God rebuked her. So what's happening? Does God not like women? Is he rebuking women for laughing? Men can laugh, but women can't laugh? Or was there something behind the laugh that caused the Lord to respond to Sarah and not to Abraham? It's the second one. Sarah was laughing at the promise. Abraham was laughing at the situation. It's one thing to laugh at God saying, I'll do a thing. And it's something completely different to laugh at the circumstances that God will use to do a thing. These are the differences between the laughters. One, laughing at the promise is essentially saying, well, God can't do it. 
It's impossible. God can't do that. And the second, Abraham's laugh, is laughing at the circumstances. It's essentially saying, well, only God can do it. One, there's no way. The other, well, there is a way, but I can't do it. And it's going to be funny when it finally happens because everyone's going to look at it and say, how did you pull that off? Well, only God could do it. Now, I want you to, for a minute, I want you to just think about the most complicated situation in your life right now. Now, for some of you that are teenagers or you're young, I mean, I mean that, it's, it's like not getting the amount of time on uh, YouTube that you want. And for some of you, older in your years, like what is the most complicated, frustrating thing? It might be like a coworker or a current relationship with your family member that's just really stressed. It's, it's the anxiety about thinking about, okay, what are we gonna do for Thanksgiving? Because I can't go to where we went last year because Uncle Weirdo is gonna say that thing and, and I don't even wanna get into that. Or it's an election year and we're just gonna stay home for Thanksgiving and Christmas because I can't be around those people. Whatever the complicated situation is, you have two ways to look at it. First, like Sarah, you can say, that situation is hopeless, it will never change, and I give up. But the second way of looking at it is how Abraham looked at situations and saying, I'm not sure how this is gonna work. I do not know, but I trust God to pull it off. Those are the two contrasts that we are presented with every single day. The trouble is that the second one is what we want, but the first is usually where we live. We want and we know we should be the people that trust God in every situation, but most often we are the people who just say, you know what would be easiest? Is to not trust God, but to just walk away, to pretend it doesn't exist, to make the person disappear, to write them off. Look, the hardest thing that you will do as a believer is to obey what Christ has told us to obey as a believer. It's not putting your faith in a God you can't see so that you can spend an eternity in a place you can't see. It's saying, if he said this, I have to obey it in this situation. It is loving your enemies. That's what that looks like. It looks like not avoiding that person at work that you can't stand. It looks like finding a way to walk in love with that person that you know can't stand you. That's one of the hardest parts of walking in faith. And I get it. You have, like, I understand where you're coming from. There are so many situations you could just list, and you're thinking about them right now, that they're hopeless. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. But I'm telling you, you have a choice. You can either Sarah the situation and say, well, I can't see a way out, so the only way I know out is to just pretend it doesn't exist or to just walk away from it. Or you can embrace what Abraham is inviting us into through what he's doing and through what the entire New Testament has invited you into, this idea that God says, I know you don't know how it's going to work. And that's cool. I don't even want you to know how it's going to work. I just want you to trust me that it is. So take the first step. And you're like, well, I don't know what the first step is. Just trust me. Just do as I ask, and I promise I will work things together. Now, from this point forward, the conversation turns um, strange. From verses 16 through 33, we find out that the Lord and the angels, they actually came for a second purpose. They came to deliver the message to Abraham that he was going to have a son within the next year, but they also came to examine a city who was right down the hill from where Abraham's home was underneath this oak tree. And the city was Sodom. 
And it was a twin city, Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you've heard this story. What we're about to read here as we get into 19 is some of the most disturbing stuff that you'll find in scripture. But it's in here for a reason. And the reason is, if you can see the decisions that humans make when they're left to their own devices and they say, I don't need God. I can figure this out on on, on my own. What you're left with is some of the most corrupt, perverse, worst uh, solutions or ways of thinking about the world that you can possibly imagine. So I just want to prep you for what's coming up. The Lord and these angels and Abraham, they move up to the edge of the hill and they kind of look down the hill and they examine the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this is a twin city, as I said, and it was filled with some of the worst perversion, pedophilia, child sacrifices. This city was the epitome of everything that would embody sin and just, it was a nasty, nasty place. It was horrible. And apparently cries in prayers had gone up to the Lord because the Lord tells Abraham, hey, I'm here to examine the city and see if these prayers are true. And if they are, I'm gonna punish the city. What Abraham does is he knows that his nephew Lot is living down in the city. He asks God, to spare the righteous in the city. So what he says is, okay, you're here to destroy the city. Would you destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people in the city? And Jesus says, no, I wouldn't destroy the city if there were 50 righteous. And Abraham quickly thinking, there's probably not 50 righteous people in this. All right, so Lord, how about 45? Would you destroy it if there were 45? And the Lord's like, I wouldn't destroy it if there were 45. Uh, 40, how about if there was, what if there was only 40? What if we were five short? And they do this song and dance back and forth with Abraham asked the Lord, well, what if there's only 30? What if there's only 25? Well, they get it down to 10. You get a sense of how bad this place is. Abraham's like, what if you only find 10 people? And the Lord's like, yeah, that's fine. I won't destroy it if I find 10 people, but it's time for me to go. So the Lord heads down to Sodom. Well, spoiler alert, there's no righteous people in the city, not even Abraham's nephew. But before we read this, I want to kind of give some context for what Abraham is doing. Because what he's doing is he's setting up a precedent that you will see further um, all throughout the rest of Scripture. And what I mean by that is um, what Abraham, and, and if, you, if, if you, in your Bibles, you may see like a header here. It says Abraham intercedes for Sodom. What he's doing here is essentially this negotiation of righteousness. It's biblically called intercession. Okay? And what that is, is it's a standing in the gap. It's a, it's a being an advocate or a mediator for the righteous in the city. So Abraham is standing before God and saying, okay, these people in the city, they can't speak for themselves for whatever reason, so I'm going to speak for them. I'll be, on their behalf, would you spare them? It's a standing in the gap. Now, what Abraham is doing is just a shadow of eventually what Jesus would do for not just one city, but for the entire world. We're told in uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. And we're told in Romans 8.34 that Jesus is the Father's side right now, making intercessions for us, for all the saints. He's praying for us at the Father's right hand right now. And this concept of intercession, um, because of what Abraham did and because of Jesus, that it became very ingrained in the early church culture. You see it in Ephesians 6, 18, 2 Corinthians 1 through 11, or 1, 11, 1 Timothy 2, 1, Romans 10, 1. And the idea is that, and Paul says this a lot, that prayer and intercession should be made for people on a regular basis. 
Prayer and intercession should be part of the church's DNA and culture. We should be joining with Christ, who is the great intercessor and mediator. We should join in with him in prayer, in praying for our family, our loved ones, our children, our city, our enemies. You follow? This invitation extends beyond the early church into us. We are a church today. And this is an encouragement for us. This is a a pattern Abraham said. It was a pattern that Jesus said. It was a pattern that the early church followed. And it's a pattern we should be following. Our prayer life as a church and as individuals in this church should be filled with petitions that go beyond our personal comfort. And what I mean by that is there is no shortage of prayers from your mouth about things in your personal life changing so things get more comfortable for you. You follow? We are really, really good at praying for ourselves and praying for things that directly affect us. But very rarely do we extend beyond our small circle of me and my life and my family and those closest to me to start for praying for people that we don't know and praying for families of people that we don't know and praying for cultures that we've never uh, been or visited to. But that doesn't mean that just because you don't do it, you should not pick up that mantle. Picking up that responsibility is part of our history. Our prayer life should be robust and it should be filled with the names of our loved ones, but also people that we don't know. But beyond that, our prayer life should be filled with the names of our enemies, which is one of the things that sets us apart as a people of God. Nobody else in this world as a faith structure takes on the mantle to care for their enemies and pray for those who hate them, but we do. Why do we do that? Because Jesus knew that his own family when he came to them, did not receive him and treated him like an enemy and yet he loved them and served them and saved them. That's our model and our pattern to follow. So we read about Abraham praying and interceding and we see the early church doing that. That is an invitation for us to join in. And this is another thing that we talked about at the beginning. When we talk about wanting to change, this is one of the things that we have to change. You have to change your prayer life. What you pray about, what you're talking about to God has got to change beyond just your own personal life and the things that affect you. You are invited into shifting the culture around you through prayer. That's the beauty of what Christ is inviting us into. Now, Let's go through and let's read the situation of what happens with Lot. Go ahead and buckle up because this is going to be wild. So Genesis 19, verse 1. So the two angels who were just talking to Abraham left the Lord. The Lord went, I guess, back to heaven. Two angels came down to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. There's that hospitality again. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. And Lot pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered into his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Why did Lot press them? 
Well, partly because he was being hospitable, he really wanted to serve them, but partly because he knew the culture he lived in and he knew what was gonna happen to these two guys if they spent the night in the town square. Unfortunately, the town square, moving from the town square to Lot's house didn't help because in verse four, we're told, before they even laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they cried out to Lot. They were banging on the doors. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the, man, to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, please do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What? Every father in this room just said, what? But they said, stand back. And they said, I'm gonna come back to this in a minute. They said, this fellow came to sojourn, essentially Lot came to visit Sodom, and now he's become our judge. He's trying to tell us what is right and what is wrong. You're a visitor in our town. You're not even from here. And you're gonna tell us what to do? And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the angels, they, well, the, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. So the angels who were in the house opened the door, reached around, grabbed Lot into the house and shut the door. And the men outside the city were struck with blindness. The men at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out trying to find where the door was. Verse 12. And the men said to Lot, have... You, anyone else in here, son, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else in the city, bring them out for this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord sent, it out, sent us out to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, oh, so they were engaged, get up, get out of this place. The Lord's about to destroy the city. But these boys thought that he was joking. Now you understand why Abraham was having such a hard time pleading with the Lord about how many righteous people were in there because he knew deep down that his own nephew wasn't even righteous. Lot was an evil, wicked dude. But the question is, if Abraham knew that this town was evil and Lot knew that it was evil to the point that he didn't even want the guy spending the night in the town square, why was Lot living there? If Lot knew this was a bad town, what was he doing in the town? Why was he living there in the first place? Well, the answer is in verse 9. I told you we'd come back to us. When the people cry out to him, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become our judge. Essentially what they're saying is, look, Sodom took you in, and now you think you're better than us? You think you can tell us what's righteous and not righteous? We want what we want, and you're not going to tell us any different. So why did Lot live in Sodom? Because it was a place where he could think he was better than everybody else. Why did Lot move his family to this wicked city? Because Lot knew that he was a wicked dude, but when you put a wicked dude in a wicked city, essentially, you start looking better than you actually are because you're only comparing yourself to the worst of humanity. 
Of course Lot looks like a righteous guy in a city like that. But the truth was that Lot wasn't a righteous guy. He was an evil dude. But he lived in the city because it gave him this, self, this, this, this feeling of self-righteousness. It lied to him about the kind of person he was. Because all he ever did was compare himself to the worst things in the world. And it made him look pretty great. Now this line of thinking is something that we do a lot too. We rarely like comparing ourselves against the standard of the Lord. Because it's Jesus. He was holy and righteous. And when you put my life against him, there's all kinds of things that need to change. I don't know if I have time for that. So what I'd rather do is just compare my life against some of these other people in the world. I've never had an affair like these people. Sure, I, you know, spend a lot of time on the internet doing whatever, but I'm not as bad as this guy. Do you see where I'm going with this? The idea that you can fake righteousness just by surrounding yourself with broken, corrupt people is something that we do a lot. We convince ourselves we're better than we are because we only compare ourselves against the lowest standard possible. And that is the two problems with the way that Lot was thinking and living. When you surround yourself with the lowest standards possible, you never actually grow or mature. You look mature in comparison to the people around you, but you really aren't. And the moment you get around truly mature people, you're exposed and you freak out and you run. It's one of the reasons why you can't stay planted. Constantly running. Because you're getting exposed and you don't like it. That's the first issue with living like Lot. You surround yourself with low standards, you never really grow. But the other problem is that when you surround yourself with low standards, they actually get lower over time. I'm surrounded with this garbage, and eventually this garbage, I start smelling like it. I start hanging around this stuff, and I start talking like it. And I start thinking like it. And I start spending my money like it. I start spending my time like it, and eventually my low standards get even lower because compromising once only makes it easier to compromise again. And since nobody's holding you accountable, eventually all of your convictions erode and anything's possible. I bring this up because as Christians, we have to constantly monitor this attitude in our life and respond with repentance because if you think that you're not doing this, the only person you're lying to is yourself. We all do this. We all like surrounding ourselves with people who we feel are below us so we feel like we can have some moral high ground. But Jesus didn't come to save the the, the healthy. He came to save the sick. And we are counted among the sick and the broken. And what I don't want us as a church doing is thinking, well, okay, we're counted among the sick and the broken, but we're not as sick and broken as that thing. You do that, you start eroding all the convictions that Christ has called us to walk. So in verse 15 through 38, this situation gets even worse. I'm gonna kind of summarize it for you. Lot and his wife and his daughters, they eventually flee the city the next morning. And God rains fire down out of heaven to punish the city. And as they're heading out, the angels tell Lot and his family, hey, as we're leaving, do not turn around and look back. Because if you do, that's essentially a sign of saying, I want that more than where I'm going. I know I'm leaving a thing, but as I'm leaving it, I really want it in my heart. You do that 
There's going to be punishment because you've got to forsake this. You've got to leave it behind. Well, Lot's wife didn't listen. And as they're heading out of town, Lot's wife turns around and looks. And the Bible tells us that she immediately just turns into a pillar of salt. So they get out of town. The whole thing goes down. Fire's raining out. The city is destroyed. And Lot and his wives are outside of the town in some cave. Not his wives, his daughters. Lot and his daughters are in some cave. And his daughters, one night, after the whole thing goes down, they have a little powwow and they say, because of what dad did, we're never going to have a family. No man's going to want us. So if we're going to have a family, we're going to have a children, we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. So the next night, what they did was they got their father drunk and they slept with their dad. And both of the daughters had children. And these children grew up to become the fathers of the nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites who are future enemies of Israel in the book of Exodus. Now my question when I read this is, how did this happen? First of all, I didn't think that was in here. This is the Bible. That doesn't belong in here. And second, how does that happen? Here's how it happens. It starts with one decision that a father makes for his family. The father says, I'm gonna raise my family in this culture. And when you do that, when you say, I know the Bible says this, but the world says this and it tastes good and I like it, so we're gonna grow up in this and I'm I'm not not gonna create habits and cultures in our family where we read the word of God together or, or we talk about the word of God over, over dinner or, or I as a dad, I confess the things that are broken in me and the things that God is changing. I'm not honest with that. I have a really hard time telling my kids I love them. That's not the culture I'm going to set. The culture we're going to set is like I'm the provider and I make sure that there's food on the table and that should be enough for you to know that I love you. And so the rest, what you're going to grow up learning, you're going to get from the culture. You're going to get from YouTube influencers, from people on Instagram, from people at school. Other people are going to tell you how to think about things because I, as a dad, have moved you into a culture where I'm not doing that anymore. I'm too busy. I'm too overworked. I'm not interested. I'm too into my hobbies. I'm not interested in being the dad and embracing the, the, the desire to want to mold my family after the, the principles of God. I'm going to let the Lord uh, uh, sit to the side and I'm going to ask the world to do that. That's what Lot did when he moved his family into this culture. And what it did was it created in his wife an appetite for this garbage to the point where when she was asked to leave it, she couldn't let it go. It created inside of his daughters a warped system of value and worth because their culture taught them how to think and how to love. Why am I bringing this up? Because the way that this family thought because of the culture they grew up in hasn't changed much in our world around us. Our world is filled with ideologies and lifestyles and cultures that all want your kids and wives and your allegiance. All of them want to convince you and tell you that the way you're thinking by following this is outdated unhealthy. There's a new way to think about things. There's a new way to live things. There's a new way to do things. And I bring this up because um, 
You know, there was a, his, there was a point in, in our world where um, if something was going to go on television, it had to go through uh, a system of checks and balances. Somebody had to watch it and say, that's appropriate to go out or that's not appropriate to go out. And all of that uh, idea of censorship has been uh, thrown out the window um, with video streaming sites like YouTube. And now, no one has to check your work, whether it's even true or not. No one has to check your point of view. If you've got a camera and internet access, you can be a person who tells the world how they're supposed to think about things. And it's really subtle too, because the way they do it is they start off as a subject matter expert in one thing, and while they're talking about this thing, they start interjecting the way that you're supposed to think about another thing. The whole, the whole beauty culture on YouTube, the whole makeup culture, that's a perfect example of that. Here's a person who's legitimately good at some form of art, but while they're doing it, they're also interjecting what you should think about the people they're living with and the way they live their life and how they think about things and how they love people and how love wins and everything. Do you follow me? And, and, and as a dad who's got kids, without doing the work of checking up on what people are telling your kids on how to think and how to live and how to love, I'm excusing myself from doing that and letting the world do it for me. So, so how did this happen? It happened because Lot refused to check his kids' phones. It happened because he, he let his wife have um, uh, social media accounts that he, he didn't have any access to or even know existed. It happened because he spent a lot of his free time doing things that he knew if somebody knew he did would be an unbelievable embarrassment to him as a person. That's how this stuff happens. You raise your family in a broken culture and then you wonder why your children do this kind of stuff. So what's the answer to this? We live in a culture where this is still a thing. What is the answer? The answer is, this is the only answer, to follow the exact same example that Abraham laid out and that Christ laid out when he called his disciples. And here's the call. Forsake everything and leave it all behind. That's the only option you have. There is no option where you take a little bit of the appetizer and you enjoy some of it, but you say, no, that other big stuff I don't want. You either forsake it all and you follow Christ or you spend the rest of your life struggling with trying to make this one thing work while you're following Jesus. And you read in the New Testament, you think, you, you see Jesus say things like the, the guy who just lost his father and come and saying, hey, uh, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I got to go marry, bury my father first. And he, he looks at him, he says, let the dead bury the dead. Ouch, Jesus. That's kind of a hard thing to say. The guy just lost his father. So what was Jesus saying behind what he was saying? He was illustrating the fact that what you want most is to go back in and, and be a part of this culture and be the, be, be the figurehead in your family and be somebody to your family and to this thing and, and get your inheritance before you follow me. No, if you really want to follow me, you have to leave it all behind. You have to forsake everything. So how do you survive in a culture like this? You do what the Bible tells us and you forsake it. For some of you, forsaking means it's time for you to delete Facebook and block YouTube in your home. Ouch. You do that, then... What? 
You can't be in on the jokes when you go to work about all the funny things that happen online. For some of you, forsaking means moving. For some of you, forsaking means changing jobs or getting your kids out of that school and putting them in some other school. Jesus says it this way. Would you rather enter into heaven with one hand because you had to cut the other off because it caused you to keep sinning? Or would you rather enter into hell with both of your hands? What would you rather have? Would you rather have a family who loves the Lord but had to say no to some of the delicacies of this world or have a family that you just gave them everything because you thought that that's what they wanted and that's how they would love you and find out when they're old enough to choose what they love, they don't want anything to do with Christ. This idea of forsaking all for the one thing that matters most is the thing that we have to consistently come back to on the regular. Because there is no shortage of this world trying to vie for your attention and tell you what to think. And unless you've made a conviction inside of your heart, I don't want anything the world has to offer. I'm going to forsake it all and follow Christ. Then you're going to continue to struggle in the same struggle you walked in here with. Now let's finish with this. I want to go to Genesis 20. This is kind of a deviation, but it gives us some highlight for coming up. This is how we're going to end. Genesis 20. This is after the situation with Lot. We're back on Abraham now. So from there, after this whole situation, Abraham left that city and that area, and he journeyed toward the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. So still similar area um, in Israel, but a different part from where he was living earlier. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, um, as they're journeying through this area, you know, she's my sister. I thought we already covered this, Abraham. You did this when you were in Egypt, and now you're, you're doing it again. And one of the kings in the area of Gerar, where he settled in, had an eye for his wife, which is wild because she's 90. <laughs> right? But man, she was a, she was a really beautiful 90. Because the king looks at her, and he's like, you're mine. This is your sister? You're mine. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you're a dead man, bro. Because of the woman whom you've taken, she is a man's wife. And now Abimelech was like, um, he had not approached her yet. So he said, um, Lord, are you going to kill an innocent person? I didn't know. Did he am not himself, Abraham, say that she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. So in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. I, 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 my bad. And God says to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return this man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all of yours. So Abimelech rises early in the morning, and he goes and calls his servants, and he tells them, the man, uh, uh, and the men were very much afraid, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, hey, what have you done to me, man? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you said this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And you're going to kill me because she was my wife. Besides, 
This is important. She is indeed my sister. What? Huh? Well, see, she's the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you have to show me. Every place we go to, please say, he is my brother. Wow, that is weird. So Abraham moved out of his hometown like God told him to, but we come to find out that he was actually married to his sister, but in a strange way because uh, they had the same father, but not the same mother. So I guess they're like half siblings. So they got married before they left. And when they left, Abraham told his wife, Sarah, hey, if we ever go into a town, I want you to make sure you tell them that you're my sister, not my wife, because I don't want anybody killing me so that they can take my wife. Now, what is all of this about? Why is this a thing? Because it demonstrates that Abraham had enough faith to leave but not enough faith to sustain him in the leaving. So little faith to sustain him in the leaving that he was convinced that he needed a backup plan while he was traveling. And this is what I mean by this. The decisions that you have every day reflect the faith that you have, not just in where you're going, but the faith you have in the middle of the journey. And just like Abraham thought it was important for him to create some kind of backup plan in case things went south, and that revealed the fact that I trust God for an ultimate direction, but not in the middle of the thing, means that the exact same situation happens to us in the sense that I have, I, I believe that, that God is going to sustain me to the end of the, of the, like, I know that ultimately I'm going to stand before the Lord in eternity. I know that he's going to save me and I'm going to be in heaven one day, but I don't know that I have enough faith for this stuff that's going to happen in between. You follow? This is the decision-making process that we have on a regular basis. Just like Abraham made backup plans, we make backup plans too. The problem with backup plans is that backup plans require no faith and they give us a sense of control. God said to go here. Well, I'm going to do it, but if it doesn't work out, I can at least do this thing. The problem with doing backup plans that give you a sense of control and faith and, and, and lack of faith is that those are the two things that Jesus is calling you away from. He doesn't want you to have control. He doesn't want you to walk in, in an area of life where you don't have any faith. So as we close today, this is what I want us to walk away with, having studied Abraham and Lot and Lot's wife, that we can have grateful hearts because Reading the lives of people who are broken expose us to things that are also broken in our life. When we stand before the Lord, what we have is the opportunity to say, just as broken as these people were, and you love them anyway, I am similarly broken, and you love me too. So God, thank you for not writing me off because I was not worth saving, but counting me among the people you have saved, and I want more than anything to be changed by what I see in here. You did it for them, and I want you to do it for me and my family. Amen? All right, let's, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.